Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. Each person with autism is unique. They have unique skills, strengths, and levels of supports needed. So how is it that all of these unique children have the same diagnosis? This week, we're excited to talk about what it means to be diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder with clinical psychologist, Dr. Jennifer Rogers. Jennifer has years of experience in the field and will share valuable insight into how broad the autism spectrum really is, as well as what it's like to go through the diagnostic assessment process. Dr. Rogers, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. Well, we're excited as well. And quite frankly, this is a topic that I think is long overdue. I think as a parent and as a clinician, it's sometimes confusing when you look at a variety of children and you're trying to classify them relatively into the same categories. It just sometimes is it's mind-blowing. But before we go there, I, I really would love to hear, and this is something we ask of all of our guests, but what is that wow moment for you? Absolutely. So I'm really lucky in that I get to relive my wow moment over and over again in my career and what I'm doing. Because the thing that I love the most about my role in psychology and my role in sort of the system of care providers for autistic kids is helping families really understand their child and often reconceptualize their child based on what we're able to learn through the evaluation. Um, so often one of my favorite moments in feedback sessions is when you can really see for parents something click in how they view their child and it just can dramatically change how they approach um, parenting, how they feel about their parent-child relationship, which has often been strained in all the events that have led them to, to seeking out a diagnosis. And it's just so, so fun to watch, especially um, for kids who have been sort of labeled as having a lot of challenging behaviors and defiant and oppositional and a lot of people come into it feeling like the kid is is choosing these behaviors and, and it's more willful. And so helping families see really what's underneath that is, is great. And sometimes parents will even, oh, the riff on, oh, now we, we I know we can do this or, oh, we should look at that. And oh, when they do this, it means that. And, and kind of just watching that happen for the families is so powerful. Uh, to get to do that on a regular basis, that's got to be emotional for you is just seeing families make that click because it, it, there must be a lot of blame being placed just because, well, I try and help my child, but they're not doing what, I, what I'm expecting. Or why is it that I can't get through to my child in this particular situation where understanding a diagnosis is probably key to that very first step? So when you go through this, and maybe it's taken a step back for everybody here, but how do you define, how do you help somebody conceptualize autism who maybe never really even knew about it or thought about it beforehand? Um, in, the, in the broadest sense, I like to talk about how um, autism is a neurodevelopmental um, difference, right? So it is 
just a difference in how the brain is developing for that person. And so, and then that affects so many areas of their life. Um, so all sort of the core features we see with autism, social skills, language, communication, um, executive functioning skills are all driven kind of just by how the brain's developing. And I think um, looking at it that way can help take some of the stigma out of it. It's not that anyone did anything wrong. As a parent, there wasn't anything you could have done differently to make autism not have happened. Um, it just is how the brain's developing. And, um, and then we sort of work for there from there. So would it be fair to say as a parent coming in, it's you're coming in with this thought that there's something wrong, but mm -hmm. inherently there might not, it, it's not something's right or wrong. It's something might be different than expected mm -hmm. and that the term disorder might throw people off from time to time. Yes, 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 absolutely. All of that. Um, you know, it's it's not a disorder in the sense of a lot of other things. I think there's a lot of movement towards talking to it about as more, you know, autistic spectrum condition because it's not something that's wrong with somebody. Um, when we talk about giving treatments and supports, it's not to cure your child or fix them as much as their brain views the world differently and interacts with the world differently than the majority of people. And so we need to help them fit into what's expected, you know, understand what's expected in certain situations and have the support to deal with the pressure of everyday life just in the context of their differences, not because something's bad or wrong. Yeah. And, and that's something that probably is hard for a lot of us to think through just because oftentimes you think that there is a right, a wrong, a correct answer, an incorrect answer is that being able to just understand that there's a different processing style. And maybe that's what leads into this is that this mm -hmm. diagnostic and developmental difference. Yes. And with autism, I mean, as we all know, is that every child is so unique. Mm -hmm. Every child's strengths, every child's areas that are barriers, and well, I guess we'll call those deficits, is that's everything is unique to that individual. So are there yeah. core similarities? Because you have to be able to categorize them into something. Yes, yes. The, the, the elephant in the room, the big difficulty here, and some of it, and this might be going back a little bit, but it, I think is, is appropriate for kind of the broadness and how we conceptualize autism, is I almost think we did ourselves a disservice in referring to it as a spectrum, um, because it, it's not a linear sort of thing um, where someone is very autistic or a little bit autistic there are these core similarities and these core areas that can be affected by autism and everyone has strengths and weaknesses in each of those areas um, and so when we're thinking about the core of autism we're looking at communication and language differences um, we're looking at social skills differences we're looking at motor skills, executive functioning, sort of flexibility in, in different areas of life and sensory um, difficulties and differences are, are a lot of the big areas that, we, that we're looking at. And so each child has their own unique profile within that. And that goes for autistic people and neurotypical people as well. We all function in all of these areas. And, and so it's all just about what's unique about that child and and where their strengths and weaknesses are at and that's why every autistic child looks different in the same way that 
every neurotypical child looks different as and well. When when you're looking and you have a family that comes into the room, is that if if I were to mention autism, I would imagine that families go from one extreme to the other based off of maybe what they've seen in the media, what they've seen in movies is autism. Oh, well, that could be the savant, the the person that really has extreme strengths in one area, but maybe has not clicked in those other areas to be able to catch up to the strengths that they've developed. Maybe it's in uh, being able to understand and process visually. Maybe that's their strength, but they can't articulate. They can't converse. They don't like socialization. Whereas you go to the other extreme and it's what maybe they've seen in self-contained classrooms at times where it's a child who's really having difficulty vocalizing engaging at all in the learning experience. So this middle area has got to be a conundrum for most families. So maybe it's helping to break down these levels because the diagnostic standards have changed over the years. And now we have these three levels, level Mm -hmm. one, level two, and level three. And I know that you mentioned you don't want to go to the severity, but now there's this level system. So how does that, how does that pair out? Yes, complicated. Um, with so with everything with autism, it's it's complicated. Um, in that there's the level system to help. Um, I think often providers sort of give a shorthand to to let someone else know what to expect for how much support this child's going to need. Um, if you are a teacher at school or an ABA provider or a psychologist, you can see that level and and kind of just have a general sense of of what to expect for how much support someone's going to need. In daily life, I think it's a little bit more complicated and the levels can be a little bit more flexible because people's needs change so dramatically based on the situation. So you might have a kid who typically can converse really well when they're comfortable um, and then you put them at Disneyland and there's a sensory overload and, you know, they lose their ability to communicate. so with with a lot of things, if there's not there's a need to not be so rigid with everything, right? And again, I think it speaks to our goal with assessment and diagnosing is to just really understand each individual child and what situations they're gonna thrive in. Um, but so level one typically is we call it needs support. Um, so that's gonna be a child who um and has verbal skills, are able to have some conversations, but some areas where maybe they struggle a little bit and need some extra help to get through the day. But with that extra support, you know, is meeting most age expectations and and generally doing fairly well. Um, Level two is needs substantial support. Um, So that's gonna be a child who maybe has a little bit of a harder time breaking away from um, their special interests um, maybe can have conversations, but usually about the thing that they really like. And if you try to pull them out of that, sorts of lose lose their conversation abilities there, or has a, a more significantly difficult time transitioning away from that activity, or or not engaging in kind of a preferred interests. Um, and then a level three is what we call very substantial support. Um, And that's a child who has, you know, difficulties verbalizing to get their needs met, um, maybe even more substantial um, difficulties with transitions or engaging in other difficulties where they're really going to need kind of one-on-one attention 
most of the time to to get through the day. And I appreciate that the way that you articulate the those levels based off of really understanding the the treatment that'll follow and the intensity, the levels of commitment to that that treatment of service. Uh, because within the treatment world, especially within ABA, is that you'll see is that the intensity of service and the prescribed dosage is very important. Mm-hmm. So what you might see is that a level three and potentially level two children might have some pretty intense dosage of treatment in order to be as successful as you might want for them to really start developing all those skills that are going to help them be independent, whereas a level one might be a little bit more focused. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, a, a child with level one um, kind of symptomology is going to be kind of the child I was talking about at the beginning where most of the time they're doing really well, but maybe have these periods of, of more intense difficulty and knowing and understanding that is, is kind of the key to services. And so they need a little bit less, maybe hours to deal with that. Now, now I'm going to, now I'm going to have to prod a little bit because I really want to get into your craft right now. (laughs) And and this is my mind spinning a little bit, but access to care is such a challenging issue in our field. And when you have a child who's maybe demonstrating at uh, the, the highest level of support, and 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 is more than likely diagnostically going to fit the categorization of autism. Is this is this a different diagnostic process than somebody who might be level one and might have other issues or or conditions that are contributing to what's going on? Is it is it more cumbersome? Is it easier to do? I mean, from a psychological standpoint, wh- how does this pair out? Is it is I don't know how this works. (laughs) So, um, I mean, to your question about is it a different process, it's kind of yes and no. So going back to kind of those core areas that are affected by autism, those are always the things that I'm looking into. So we're always going to be looking at cognitive skills, at language skills, social skills. You know, all of those things are going to be looked at. It's really the tools that I use to look at them are going to change based on the child and maybe how many how much verbal skills they have their age their ability to participate in in the assessment um but what i'm looking at is is similar as kids get older and or even if there's the more just complexity medically or um you know they've had more anxiety or trauma or something else that that can complicate the picture it can make it um, a little bit more challenging because you want to really understand again that full picture. And I don't know how often this has come up on the podcast, but you know, psychological diagnoses are complex, and human behavior is obviously very complex. And so the same behavior can come from different way areas and in different things depending on what's going on. ADHD, anxiety, trauma can all autism can all sort of mimic each other in some ways. Um, so it can be a process to tease it apart and, and kind of put the, put it together in a way that makes sense. And I think that that does make a lot of sense as far as, you know, even what tools and um, what skills you're going to have to bring to the table yourself mm-hmm. in order to get to some of these more complex versus some of the more rote diagnostics. Not that anything is ever really rote, but the mm-hmm. way you're describing it, it sounds like the autism used to be 
in, at least conceptually and how it was perceived in the public as far as if you have diagnosis if you have a diagnosis of autism that's what you have your entire life and that's a lifelong diagnosis which mm-hmm. makes sense but when you're looking at these levels mm-hmm. that to me would indicate potentially we're talking about a fluid process it's it's something where maybe you are autistic but the level of severity of of support might change over time and you might be moving across that spectrum even though we didn't want to refer to it that way is that the spectrum of supports might change is that is that correct absolutely absolutely um it is 100% possible to to float between those levels based on um need and situation and that's part of our goal in providing services and support for children is to help help them need less support in the future. And, and by nature, then that would make them, you know, change levels down to kind of a level one. Um, if we're able to fade services and, and they're able to thrive, that's all we want for kids, right? Is is for them to thrive in, in what, every way that they can. And if you're a psychologist or even a developmental pediatrician who's going through the process of doing the diagnoses and doing the testing and preparing the family for what's going on, is the, is that described? I mean, is it talked about on these levels? Is it talked about with the enhancement of, you know, these supports are really going to be important for you, but I do want to see you back because the chance is, is that we will be able to improve upon that over time where supports can be withdrawn. Is that a dialogue that's happening amongst most practitioners or is this still new to the field? I hope it is. Um, I would, I would hope it is. From my, you know, from the conversations on our psychology team, I know that those are conversations that are happening at least here um, within ABS Kids, because um, we see it, you know, we see kids grow and, and change, and um, that reevaluation process can be really helpful. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of great data on outcomes for autistic kids. You know, there's just a lot of variability in, in kids, and we're able to diagnose younger and younger now, which is great, because then we're getting support for these really young kids and can, can, can really affect the trajectory of their life in a lot of really helpful ways. And and so from a psychologist's point of view, the more data points I have for a kid, the better I can point parents towards the future and help them plan. Um, And so that's where kind of coming back in and and having that follow-up can be really helpful to, to, for a parent to feel is empowered for for what to expect in the future so they're not kind of being blindsided by you know how their child changes and what sort of sports they're going to need in the future so now now you have my mind going all over the place but uh, you're you're painting a picture and i'm I'm gonna actually put you in a situation where you're telling me this is a world where access to care is no problem Mm-hmm. And continuity of care, it's now my number one focus because there's so many psychologists in the world that everybody's able to get <laughs> assessments whenever they want. I how love often, this world. How often? No, wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> how often would you like to see the children back so that you can reevaluate some of these skills if access to care wasn't a challenge and growth within the psychology industry and within the practice of clinicians? was rapidly progressing. 
Um, ideally, and of course, like everything, this is going to change a little bit depending on individual circumstances. But typically, with the, after an initial evaluation, I would want to give it two to three years um, before I would see a child back or kind of in that kindergarten or right before kindergarten range. So if I diagnose a child at two, you know, I'd want to see them kind of around five to help prepare for school and get a picture of, okay, you've had maybe two, three years of services now. Let's see where you're at right now and what kinds of things support in school might be the most helpful for you. And then kind of every three years, spacing it out a little bit as kids get older, um, really before major transitions. So late elementary school, let's help prepare for what middle school life might look like. Middle school, let's prepare for what supports are needed in high school. Late high school, let's prepare for what adulthood would look like with as needed assessments um, if something were to change. You know, if, if a child starts seeming more anxious or gets into first grade and all of a sudden, oh, there's some attention problems here that need mm-hmm. to be addressed, um, something like that. But it's really again, in those major life milestones to help guide guide the family and that child through through life and through development. Yeah, I watch my I watch my daughters go through all these milestones and transitional. They're called transitional periods for a reason. Yes. Is that I see this and it's like, gosh, new skills are needed every mm-hmm. single time. And having the access to a psychological evaluation for somebody who maybe perceives the world slightly different or is has different um, inputs that are occurring, it's always going to be that much more important to be able to help guide on how to be able to enhance their their experience. Um, when you when you have these meetings with the families and you're debriefing on your diagnosis, and I'm, I guess I'm going to try and do this as three parts, but say you have somebody who is at that level three, level of supports. What is it that you're explaining to the family as far as your advice, as far as your recommendations? Walk me through that process. And I know it's going to be different for every family, mm-hmm. but what are some of the commonalities that you're expressing there? Yeah. Um, in that situation, you know, we're talking a lot about um, how to make sure everyone has the support that's going to be needed a child with um, kind of that level of disability and kind of that significant need for support. Um, it's difficult and I'm I'm helping the parents understand how much help they're going to need for that child and then also one of my goals is to help the parents feel supported too so walking them through you know helping them feel supported and that they have the resources to deal with that and kind of their own emotional reaction to to what's happening. Um, and, and again, kind of giving them guides for the future support and what to expect, which is going to change depending on kind of how old the child is. Uh, I mean, the prognosis question is always so hard to get to. But mm-hmm. I mean, the the fact that you're helping the family to be able to process, I think, is is really important. Um, prior to the the advent of more clinic-based care, I couldn't imagine as a family just on that first day being like, hold on, now I'm going to have 30 hours a week of people in and out of my house and doing treatment constantly. It's a big change of life. 
and it, and it requires some additional attention and support and helping people to realize the the short-term pain that maybe is leading to that long-term gain and how the family structure can still be a family structure despite that. Yes. I often like to talk to parents about letting They've been taking on all the roles for that child up to that point. They've been trying to teach. They've been trying to counsel. They've been trying to parent. Um, and so I like it so primitive. Now we're going to take over the teaching and sort of counseling part of it. And you get to just be their parent. And so you might have less time with them during the day. But hopefully that time can be more intentionally just we get to hang out and enjoy each other, um, not worry about all the other stuff that maybe a, a therapist can can take over. Yeah, getting to that point of being able just to be and enjoy your family and enjoy your children is it's something we all thrive on and that we all seek. So how about the other end? I'm gonna skip level two yeah. right now just because level two I feel like is a mix is a like a mixed <laughs> mod. Like everything's in there. Yeah. But how about this level one? It sounds like it'll be a very different conversation, in my opinion, with the family in understanding their diagnosis. But is it or am I off? I mean, is this a, a different conversation you're having? Um, you know, it might be less different than you would expect. Um, just because, you know, autism is it's a neurodevelopmental thing. And so there are long term effects and. And so there's still some changes in potentially expectations for families. It really depends on sort of where, where the family's coming, coming in from um, as far as kind of what they think is, is their plan. Sometimes I have found level one to be really hard um, to for just different sorts of reasons. Could that be just because with level one is that there's so much that they're seeing amongst every other child in their child mm -hmm. and that there's one or two things that they feel like, well, why can't I, and I'm going to put quotation marks around this, fix this. I yeah. mean, is that the thought process where it's just discouraging? Whereas mm -hmm. at level three, you know, you know, there's a lot of work I need to do and I'm going to yeah. put it and invest that time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it often comes down to, as parents, we create this picture of what we expect our kid's life to be like. And the more dramatically we have to change that picture, the harder it can be. Um, and so that's where I think our expectations as parents coming in can really affect that. And um, there's kind of just that grieving process in my kid's life is going to look differently than what I've been dreaming about since I knew they were coming. Um, and that can be just a really hard process, but it doesn't mean it's a bad life, right? It's just different. And that's often the conversation I'm having with um, families with a level one diagnosis is this might look different than what you've expected, but they have all of these strengths to still really succeed in life and what's going to make them happy. Um, and I tend to focus a lot on doing kind of strengths-based assessments. So we're having lots of conversations about these are all the areas that your kid's thriving and situations that make it easier for your kid to thrive and let's help put them in those situations, even if it doesn't look the same as what you would have expected. Yeah, and I would imagine every single family appreciates that so much because there's nobody who goes through life with all their expectations being met all the time. Right. It's it's understanding and appreciating where you are at any given minute. 
that I think is valuable, that taking that step back and looking at the strengths assessment has got to be so important. Well, one thing that I do want to end on is just you mentioned the access now to younger and younger diagnostics, but there are still people who have questions when they're older. I mean, so what is your recommendation to families as they're even questioning or concerned about the potential of something? It used to be almost like a, 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 a demarcation or something like that, that something's wrong and it's, it's not good. But I mean, now you're looking at autism and how do you help families to say, you know what, take that step in to figure out what's going on um, and not feel stigmatized through the process? Um, I think the work that kind of providers and the autistic community are doing as a whole is really helping with that just as as so many people are coming forward and being open about their autism diagnosis. And so you're seeing more people in pop culture and the world talk about autism. It's getting destigmatized a little bit and we're kind of just recognizing that it's just a difference in, in kind of just the whole neurodiversity movement and, and recognizing that all of our brains are just different and it's okay and, and we can figure it out together. Um, my advice for parents is always the, the minute that you're starting to wonder it's best to just go ahead and talk to someone about it um, to sort it out Um, even if it's not a full evaluation if it's just consulting with a psychologist about what you're seeing um, any information is good information Um, and the more you can understand your child the better um, you're going to feel as a parent and so yeah just just the more you can learn and ask those questions the better um we've also just learned that the brain is way more plastic than we ever thought especially in those early years so the earlier that um, we can start seeing your kid and working with them um the 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 more long-lasting changes can be made and and you can really see a lot of amazing progress um, with those early intervention years so so just don't hesitate to ask, you know, you know, you're never going to regret seeking some help and not needing it than realizing three, four or five years down the road. Oh, man, this is something I wish we had gotten help sooner. And parent guilt is real. So do whatever you can to to alleviate yourself of that and, and kind of just ask those questions. Yeah, I, th- I think that's uh, such cogent advice. And, and quite frankly, I think I've heard that so many times. But it's one that we almost have to beat the drum to. It's got to just kind of keep putting it out there is that, mm-hmm. A, there's no reason to have a stigma around uh, having a diagnosis of autism because all it is is a difference, as you described. Right. And secondly, if we know that we can help to be able to give that person, empower that person to be able to achieve all they want to in life by helping sooner, mm-hmm. then then let's take the right steps to get there. So, well, Dr. Rogers, I appreciate your time today. I mean, you took a very complex issue of all these levels with autism and you simplified it in a way where I think that it now becomes digestible. It's understandable kind of, you know, how these things work and that it really isn't a gradient of where you are with skill, but more of a understanding of how do we need to provide that support? And I think that's a good way to process that information. So I appreciate you taking the time today to talk with us about this. And I think it's going to be so informative for parents and clinicians alike. Absolutely. Glad to be here.
Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.